Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, April 15th, 2013. On this day in history, 101 years ago, the Titanic sank in the Atlantic Ocean after striking an iceberg. First up, a Kickstarter alum. I spoke with Ellen Ziegler a while back and found myself completely captivated by her telling of a classic romance between a Mexican bullfighter and an American ballerina. You know you're going to want to hear this. Hi, my name is Ellen Ziegler, and I'm asking for your help in telling a love story about a 21-year-old American ballerina and a Mexican movie star. It's told in the form of a handmade book called El Torero y la Bailarina, or The Bullfighter and the Ballerina. I'd like to welcome you to DJ Grandpa's Crib. I'm talking with Ellen Ziegler of Seattle, Washington. I've read her information, and to me it seems as though she's an international artist. And oh, my gosh. And you're proposing this beautiful book, from what I can see, called The Bullfighter and the Ballerina. It's on Kickstarter. That's right. And I've read a lot about you, and you're quite an accomplished person there. It's very impressive. Thank you so much. Could you tell me a little bit about this story? Well, my mother was a ballet dancer. She was with a company which was at that time called Ballet Theater and is now called American Ballet Theater. It's now considered America's official ballet company. It was founded in about 1939, and in 1941, when the company was quite young, and so was she, they were invited to Mexico City to be in residence You know, the whole company was there for a year at the Palace of Fine Arts in Mexico City. My mother was 21 years old at the time. And uh, according to her sister, who is still alive, my Aunt Edith, this was really my mother's first chance to get away from home, away from her mother, who was uh, watching over her very carefully. And she was young and vivacious and really ready for adventure. And so she and her fellow dancers, here they found themselves in Mexico City in one of the most interesting times. So we think of Mexico as being, you know, sort of a south of the border, you know, having a certain culture that is connected to the native people and that sort of thing. But at the time, it was a very European city. And there are gaps in the story. But what I know is that She met and uh, fell in love with this young actor who was also a bullfighter and a very great comedian named Mario Moreno Reyes, and his stage name was Cantinflas. Now, if you say Cantinflas in this country, most people don't know who he is. But if you say it in Mexico, you might as well be saying kind of a cross between Charlie Chaplin and Cary Grant. Now, at the time, he was just starting out, and so was my mother. And uh, they had a romance. And the reason I know that is partly because she told me about it. And also because I have photographs and telegrams and uh, different kinds of documents that kind of trace the history of their romance together. And uh, she passed away in uh, 2010 at age 90. A year later, I was in Mexico City and decided I wanted to do a book about her. Are you a romantic at heart? 
I wouldn't describe myself as a romantic, but this is a very romantic story. Why such a personal book? I mean, maybe all books are personal, but this one seems different to me. I think one might ask, you know, is it too personal a story to tell about your own parent? I don't think that's true only because my mother did tell me the story and also because she loved her time in the ballet. She was a ballerina from when she was four till she was 26 and she got married and then became the mother of three kids. And then, you know, that was that as far as dancing went. Why such old tech for the construction of this book? As far as new tech or high tech, you know, we're surrounded by computers and digital media everywhere we look. And you probably have noticed that along with that, there has been a, let's see, what's the right word for it? I think a nostalgia for some of the old ways things were done when they were done more by hand. For example, a lot of uh, kids my daughter's age buy vinyl records. A lot of uh, young college students are back to using film cameras. And there are plenty of young people who are really into typewriters. So I think part of it is that we're missing that, the touch, the actual handmade kind of thing. Also, an artist's book is by definition a book that's made by hand. You know, there's a wonderful tradition of letterpress printing and hand-stitched binding. So I've really enjoyed working in that medium. Could you tell me a little bit about the company that's putting this together? I know it has sort of a a bilingual thing, uh, the Paper Hammer Company. You know, my mother had a great love for Hispanic culture, uh, not to mention a great love for a particular Hispanic guy. And a wonderful closing of the circle is that Paper Hammer, which is this uh, company that makes beautiful handmade books and other products in eastern Washington using the old ways, using letterpress and using, um, you know, hand binding. The people who live in the little town where their company is happen to be from Mexico. So the fact that my book is being bound by a woman who is Mexican is just, you know, as I said on my site, the best kind of poetic justice. Ellen Ziegler of The Ballerina and The Bullfighter, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to welcome Jeff and Liz Helfrich from Dallas, Texas, to the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, DJ Grandpa. They're here today because they have a Kickstarter going on about the Soul Can. Basically, they're trying to start a recycling revolution to make it easier for households, for Americans, or I mean, well, not just for Americans, for anyone around the world within the reach of this podcast to make it easier for them to recycle. Could you tell us about the Soul Can? Sure. The Soul Can is a small trash can that we designed after having problems recycling in the bathroom. Jeff did not want to make piles of trash that could be recycled in the bathroom. It was just easier for him to throw it in the trash can. And I got really tired of pulling recyclable things out of his trash can with all the other lovely things that were in there and putting them in the recycle bin. So we just went and looked on the market, and we couldn't find anything that was affordable and compact and fairly nice-looking. So we decided we would make it ourselves. And I noticed that you said it was his can. (laughs) I was pretty good about taking my recycling things to the trash. 
this can has been designed with husbands in mind, shall we say. My wife insisted that we put large handles on it so that my hands would have no problem emptying it out. Okay, so it's large handles and it's your trash can. And, uh, <laughs> Got it. Large, large handles so I can empty it out all the time. You can empty it. I can empty it. The girls can empty it. The four-year-old knows how to pull it apart and empty it. It's pretty easy. Children love to recycle once it's made easy, and they get into it, and they help you with, you know, your whole job of recycling. So the soul can is a great functional idea in this process of making recycling easier. You're absolutely right that convenience is the number one barrier to recycling. I mean, 90% of Americans have access to recycling today. Yes. Only about 35% of waste is recycled. And uh, the EPA estimates that up to 75% of waste could be recycled or composted. And so there's a huge gap there between what we could do and what we do do. And so you know, our hope with this project is that we really can make it more convenient and help increase those recycling rates. So we drew it right on the back of a napkin, which is such a cliche, but it's true. And then we worked for more than a year kind of refining our idea. We have a provisional patent. We have a prototype that was 3D printed for us. So we've kind of gone through the whole uh, engineering and design process. And now mm. we're right to the where to manufacture this thing, we need a mold that costs $40,000. So that's why we turned to Kickstarter, because we don't have $40,000 to invest in this project, and we need to pre-sell some to be able to fund that. You know that it's amazing what you can do with these 3D molds these days. I, I didn't even know they existed until like a month or so ago. Basically, 10 years ago, there would be no hope for a couple like us to invent a plastic product. I mean, what we would have to do is convince an existing manufacturer to manufacture it. And that's very hard to do with just a drawing, you know, when you right. can't show them a physical item, you know. And, and the 3D printing is, is amazing in that it allows you to print your idea and show a functional idea. I mean, our, our, our can actually, the mechanism that snaps it together and, and it pulls apart with, I mean, those work. Because it was 3D printed, on your video, it, it doesn't look like a prototype. It's functional. You snap it apart. I mean, your children play tug-of-war with it. <laughs> exactly. So it's totally cool. In many ways, the soul can just gives people a reminder that, hey, recycle. You know, there's a follow-on benefit from recycling. It's not just keeping waste out of landfills is great, but cities actually save money that they can spend on other more important things like parks and schools. And so if there are any municipalities out there listening, go to Kickstarter and check out the Soul Can because it quite possibly could help you earn money for cash-strapped cities and towns all across the nation. Thanks. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> what roles do the children take up in this whole recycling business of yours? Well, and she brought it to school for show and tell, which uh, was pretty fun. So they played the Kickstarter video for her class, and she told them about the can. and. You know, we spent a whole weekend doing our video, and they were a huge part of the video. And they were kind of our stars of our video, and they, they helped us out quite a bit. They really make their biggest appearance towards the end of the video, but we're thankful for their help. And they've supported the project by being patient with us, too. I mean, this takes a lot of time, obviously, uh, as you know. 
Uh, Kickstarter, I think, as you say, it's not free money. And so, we, you know, we've been spending a lot of time on it, and they've been really patient with us. How'd you come up with the name Soul Can? Well, it's Soul because it's the only can that you need. It's one can with two halves. Uh, what else did we decide? Well, you're a kind soul if you want to save the earth. So uh, soul works in that in that level as well. You know, the other side of it is if you look at the bottom of it, it's kind of curved like the sole of a foot on the bottom. Right. And so soul works on that. And the last piece is, you know, and this is really stretching for our soul here, but, you know, it kind of looks like a yin-yang shape of oh, the can. Yeah. And that reminded us a little of the South Korean flag. And the capital of South Korea is, of course, Seoul. So there is a lot of Seoul in this one little can. That is for certain. I want to say congratulations on the Seoul can. And for anyone who's interested, go to kickstarter.com and type in Seoul can. Their DJ grandpa approved. So check them out. Thank you so much for having us on your show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, we're just delighted to be able to speak with you, DJ Grandpa. Appreciate you taking the time. This is a big hello from Kino, one of the lead vocalists of the band Big Mountain. You'll remember our big hit back in 1994. Ooh, baby, I love your way every day. Yeah, You've come to the Kickstarter community to ask the community for help to achieve your dream. You know, this this 10-year reunion album of Big Mountain. Actually, it's 20 years. 20 years? I checked years. on Spotify. It said 2003. Baby, I Love Your Way came out in 1994. Right. And our first album came out in 1992. You know, Big Mountain has had so many sort of stop and goes throughout our yeah. our career. A lot of it has to do with sort of my own insecurities and inabilities to really make a decision about whether or not music and being a pop musician was what I wanted to do. I always have loved music, but I've always struggled against just the whole public part of this business. And, I, you know, and I wouldn't even necessarily say the public part. I think that from the very beginning, I was really inspired, man, sincerely, by a lot of my heroes that were social political champions, the Bob Marleys, the Che Guevara's of the world. Right. And I really did see music as being just a side vehicle to my life as an activist. It was hard to reconcile with the whole capitalist nature of the business, and I must admit, I did a horrible job of making sense of it, especially as a young man. You know, I had a question written down for you saying, what is it like to have the number one record in the country or the number one record in the world? But I mean, I already know the answer to that. No one can handle that much heat. I was going to say it was 10 years. You're telling me 20. I mean, that's a whole generation ago. Yes. I look back at it, we were diehard Rastafarians. I mean, we were right. so entrenched in the reggae community, and we 
you know, when you're young, you really think you're bringing something new to the world. You know, we got carried away. Right. Back in those days, there was English reggae, there was Jamaican reggae, and then there was Big Mountain. We were the only representative from the U.S. We were the only band that was able to make it up to that level where we spent our lives on tour buses with Jamaicans. So that was a trip on its own, man. For a young American kid growing up in Southern California, just to try to handle that and be hanging out with the disciples of the religion that you had chosen, like you say, I was in no position to handle that, man. But I'll tell you what, emotionally, I was a wreck. turned your life into something totally different now. Why Big Mountain now? June 2013, Kickstart. Why now? You know, there's not anything to lose right now, and the art is calling. You know, in this music business, as you know, you kind of get to a situation where you figure, man, I've tried everything. (laughs) (laughs) I've tried (laughs) Musical Monk. I've tried just staying in the studio for as long as I could. Man, I've tried drugs. I tried writing music without drugs. I mean, I tried everything. Right. You know, you kind of like find yourself in a situation where you're going, well, what's it going to take this time? Art is one of those mind-challenging experiences. I know I'm not going to get through it without some heartache, Without some nights in the studio where I'm sitting there going, I don't know what else to put on right now. You know what I mean? So that thing, it kind of scares me. You're going to be pouring your life into that record. That's what it's going to take because it's a dream and you're producing something that the world didn't necessarily ask for. Every time you do a record, man, you know you're taking a risk with your family, with everything that you built outside of that life. I'm pulling for you, man, and I'll live vicariously through you. <laughs> right on. Well, listen. So, so, see, now we got some sort of mutual comfort here because I'm living vicariously through you. So many worries in this time. What's the crisis of the day? Should we stand and represent? Should we turn and run away? We got to work to make things right and make some sacrifice for change. If we want good food tomorrow, we got to plant good seed today. You know, this interview with you is, is nothing that I expected. You know, normally before every interview, I prepare for an hour and I write out normally nine to whatever questions. I haven't looked at the first question since we've been talking. I mean, I haven't looked at the page. So it's like I haven't even gotten a chance because this... Interviews on a totally different trajectory than I would have imagined. You know, I saw, I saw pop star, I saw okay reggae, I saw okay maybe UB forty ish, okay whatever. All right, well here's a question off the top of my head. I'm vicariously through you. You're vicariously through me. A lot of times in my life, people are always saying that I have everything that other people want. And when I look at you and you have the family and everything, I'm thinking that you must have everything that a lot of people want. It's so interesting you say that because just this morning I was writing some lyrics in the shower and 
I was thinking, you know what? All of my problems go right back to money. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? You're not doing too bad, Kino. The health of my family is good. Thanks to my job, I have health benefits from my family. My folks, they're there for me. Yeah. If you got the past and you got the future, you know, what else do you really need? And uh, you know what? We got to count our blessings, man. Money stress is about this system trying to keep our spirit down and trying to determine our value based upon money. That's the thing that we're trying to fight with this music. Kino, thanks for coming on the show, man. Well, I really enjoyed being on DJ Grandpa's crib, and I wish you the best as well, my brother. You can find me on the terrace Waiting for my rise to turn gold Meredith Ramirez, Ithaca, New York, a scholar, a businesswoman, a do-gooder, and a knitter. She combined her talents and formed the Ricefield Collective. Let's find out more. So welcome to the crib. Thank you so much, DJ Grandpa. It's an awesome name, by the way. Well, you have Marketing 101 down. Always compliment the host. I'm telling you the truth. I'm only telling you the truth. Could you tell me about the Ricefield Collective? The Ricefield Collective is an organization that attempts to gain sustainable income for Indigenous people in the Ifugao rice terrace region of the Philippines by training them to make high-quality hand-knitted accessories, such as hats and scarves for now, but we're hoping to be able to expand our line in the future. And why have you chosen Kickstarter to fundraise on? The major impetus for choosing Kickstarter is the fact that we wanted to define ourselves as an organization that doesn't sacrifice aesthetics and quality for the purposes of benefiting people. We think that those two sides are equal. And we thought that by presenting our work to Kickstarter, it would really challenge us because of the fact that Kickstarter started out and continues to be this medium or this website that emphasizes creativity and beauty and awesomeness. Now, your collective on Kickstarter is focusing on the Ifugao people, the indigenous people, the Philippines. That is correct. Why that community specifically, or at least to start with? I'm a graduate student in comparative literature, and I was yes. transcribing and translating their poetry at the time. So that's why I came to do research there. And increasingly, I found myself really drawn to the people. I met Jean, and she was my first knitting student. And the process of knitting allowed us to bond and to form a really close relationship. And then this idea kind of grew out of that relationship. And for me, I grew up in the Philippines. I lived there until I was 15. I grew up on a farm. And so I felt like I was uniquely suited to be able to bring the project to fruition for these people. And as somebody who myself has been displaced, I have a lot of ambivalences and questions about the fact that I immigrated from the Philippines without my own volition. And my parents, even though they weren't 
forced probably in the same way that these people would, they still move for economic reasons. So I have a really close relationship with this feeling like if you're going to move from your home and from a home that you've known all your life, I think it's really important that that is your choice and that you're not forced by economics or money or circumstance to do it. And I feel really passionate about that. So full disclosure, you're not a member of the Ifugao. I'm not a member of the Ifugao. But you are from the same country. I grew up about, I would say maybe about an eight hour drive. And I grew up just really, you know, with people talking about it. And I was never there, you know, like I was never, I didn't have the ability to go there because I was a child, even though, you know, even though I was thoroughly fascinated. I'm going to switch over a little bit to the whole business side of what you're doing. In your Kickstarter campaign, you use words like, so I reached out to a friend or two and X, Y, Z, or you use words like do-gooder. Nobody uses do-gooder these days. Why did you choose that particular word? I think that for me, a do-gooder is somebody who just does something because they think it's cool or it's awesome or it's something that is good for the world without any hope for return, without any sort of guile or without any strategy. And You know, like as much as that word isn't used, I feel like, at least to me, the past few days have shown me that there are a lot of do-gooders in the world. If I just look at you at face glance, Mm -hmm. what you seem to be Harvard-educated, Cornell now graduate student, it seems as though your immigrant story is though, if I can call you an immigrant, is that you have it all and you're going back to your homeland translating stories, I don't know for whom, but I just felt like that's why you kind of focused on the Ithacao and wanted to help them so much. And uh, you used words in your Kickstarter campaign of how each garment that they knit, you could rest assured that it would be knitted with a smile. And I thought that your words were very precisely chosen. And that's not to put you down. It's just to... um just to say that I, I felt as though I noticed a few things, that's all. And we worked on that story for a long time, not because it needed to be pitched or marketed, but because mm. I wanted to tell the story as precisely as possible. And I wanted to emphasize what it is about what we're doing that we believe in. We tend to want to think of indigenous people as being frozen in time. But they have the same desires as we do. And one of their desires is to find something new that's interesting and that's enjoyable, that it's knitting fits with the way that they live, but it's also something completely different. And that's really exciting to them. And it's really exciting to us to be able to bring it to them. Okay. You're American. Americans are known for being selfish, X, Y, Z. All roads lead back to self. How did the Ithagal collective, how did they view you when you came back? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, the thing is that I speak Tagalog fluently. So I think that immediately, the language thing immediately marks you as somebody who, even if you're a foreigner, even if you come from somewhere else, that you've taken care to maintain 
your ties with your country. And I think that that's, that's something that has always been really important to me. Meredith, I just wanted to say thank you for coming on the show. I wish you and the Ricefield Collective Organization the best and the Ifugao people. And uh, I am glad that you're such a do-gooder. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you're a do-gooder too. I didn't say that. <laughs> I said that. <laughs> Sometimes we try our best. That's all I know. Up next, we're going to talk to Brian Lee. He's a game enthusiast, and he's put out his first project on Kickstarter. They're zombie black poker cards. It's a novelty item. He's out of Fishers, Indiana. Brian, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Why don't you tell me about your novelty item? It's a set of poker cards that's based off of an uh, old French style of poker cards. I really like the artwork on that style and i'm also a big fan of zombies so if you watch the videos you can kind of see that in there so i took that style kind of recreated it and zombified it and i gave it more of a uh, gothic dark uh, kind of yeah. look to it this being my my first kickstarter project i, I kind of wanted to start with something a little more simple you know my real passion is game design so I thought, you know, to kind of get my feet wet, I'd start off with a uh, deck of poker cards. Now, your video is very crafty. I really like mm -hmm. it. I love the mock kids in there. Are they, are they really your children or something? That's my daughter, Mackenzie, and my son, Alex. I try and involve them as much as possible. Yes. You know, everything I do is for my kids. So I thought it'd be fun for them and for me to, you know, include them into the project video. Yeah, they did a great job, man. Chombies, I see. Children, zombies. I like that. I like yep. that. So how has the Kickstarter community responded to you? One of the things I really love about Kickstarter is just how helpful people are. Right. Eric with Albino Dragon, he does playing cards also. He helped me out a lot before I started my project, trying to give me you know, tips and things like that, since he's already been through it a couple times. And it's very inspiring, you know, how helpful people are. I'm glad people have reached out to you there. And I see that you've backed 13 projects before you started your first. And I believe that's yep. always a good sign when I look at a page. You know, it's kind of like being in the candy store, but, you know, you're on a budget and can only do so many. That's true. Money is finite. Yep. You know, and you have children. I think your priorities are in the right place, man. You're spreading it around, you know. That's that's yep. a good thing. Okay. Now, back to your video. It was a very nice video. I loved the concept of it, and it just had so many different facets to it, even the art style that you took. I don't even know how to describe the art style, but it wasn't claymation. I don't even know what you call it, but it was very cool the way you did it. It kind of set you apart from most of the people. Your marketing was totally on point with the children, and, and you told the story you know, beginning, middle, and end. Who came up with the idea for the video? My wife and I both kind of had the idea, and I'm a graphic designer, and I've done a little bit of video stuff, but not a whole lot. So I kind of wanted to play more towards my skills, and uh, that's why I kind of did the, you know, I guess you could piecemeal graphics that I did for the video, 
And uh, my wife helped me out quite a bit with that also. She's more of a video person. I read in your bio that you said that when Kickstarter came along, you saw an opportunity, a door open. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me about that light bulb going off in your head? You know, I've always wanted to have my own business, even since I was, you know, a little kid. That's just kind of been my dream. And, you know, life goes on and you get married and have kids and you still want to follow that dream. But, you know, there's usually a roadblock and that's finances, yes, getting sir. the money and you can get loans. But, you know, I have a family to, to take care of and I've never wanted to put them at risk. Well, with Kickstarter, you're getting funded by people that believe in your project. And there's no risk to you. There's no risk to them. They know that they're helping somebody fulfill a dream. They're getting a cool deck of cards or video or, or whatever it is that they decided to back in the end. And it's just one of the great things about that. So I don't have to put my family at risk, you know, and I get to follow my dream of being a, a game designer. What would you like to say to your backers? You can't believe how much I appreciate you believing in my project. It's inspirational, the whole KickTrack website, and and you guys are, are what make a great community. I really appreciate it. I keep saying marketing is 50% of the battle to me. I looked at your mm -hmm. war punk webpage. I love the color schemes. I see that you put a lot of graphic energy into it, a lot of thought. So oh, I you. just wanted to say congratulations with your whole Kickstarter campaign, and I'm pulling for you. Zombies rule, man. Yep, I'm a fan. <laughs>Custom guitars, online design, fast turnaround, Monica Guitars. This growing company offers all the features of the big boys, but at an affordable price. Co-founder Dave Barry of Austin, Texas, gave me all the details. Why have you guys started a guitar manufacturing company? As guitar players ourselves, my co-founder Kevin and I, we've both been playing guitar for a really long time and have played in bands, we've owned and played many guitars, and we just kind of saw a real hole in the marketplace in terms of quality custom guitars at an affordable price. Right. Most of the time, custom guitars, you know, cost $8,000 and you're waiting 8 to 12 months to get it. And that's just not really feasible for the average musician. You can't afford that. You don't have that type of time to wait. You know, you go on our website, you can design your own guitar, and we make it right here in our shop in Austin. Okay, Dave, let's say I want to design my own guitar. What is the process that I could go through to get it done with your company, Moniker? You go to our website, monikerguitars.com. And from there, we have the body shapes that you can pick from. We have our Reedsdale style and our Dixie style, and you pick which shape you want. And once you pick the shape, you get kind of funneled into the design page where you actually pick all your paint colors, your hardware colors, what kind of pickups you want in it. If you want to add your own text, your own graphics, you know, you completely design all the aesthetics of the guitar. Also, you know, while picking um, the mechanical elements, which pickups you want, we have a wide variety of pickup selections for you and tuner selections. And after that, you, you know, you put the guitar in your cart and you check out and we get the order and we, we start building it immediately and it ships to you in about four weeks. Now, I've heard that 
through your Kickstarter campaign, you get a special Kickstarter rate. What's that discount? There has been such demand for hollow body guitars or semi hollow body guitars that we started doing research into them and starting to develop prototypes. But because of the very nature of how those guitars are made, there's certain jigs that need to be made, there's special tooling that needs to happen, there's a whole other step to the process that normally doesn't happen with our solid bodies. Right. So that's why we started the Kickstarter campaign, is to pay for the materials and the development and the software and everything to be able to make these. So those guitars will retail for over $1,000 when they're available on our site. But through our Kickstarter campaign, we still have some early bird specials left at $800 each for those hollow bodies. What's the difference between a hollow body and a solid guitar? Because I know nothing. Visually, the first thing you'll notice is that there's an F-hole cut out on the left-hand side of it, and it's basically an F-hole that you can see in a violin or most hollow stringed instruments. Right. And that allows kind of air to move from inside the chamber to out and allows the wood to vibrate more. So the actual sound of a semi-hollow body guitar compared to our hollow body guitars is it's a little bit of a bigger sound, a little more of an open sound. Is it louder? Um, because you're allowing... Excuse me? Is it louder? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's, it's okay. about, and it also depends on what pickups you choose to put in it, but the actual overall output volume is about the same. Oh, okay. All right. I wanted it louder. Louder. Oh, well, louder. <laughs> we have all sorts of pickups you can put in there to make it louder. We have all sorts of hot output pickups to choose from. Okay, let's say I don't know anything about... Well, I already said I didn't know anything about guitars, but let's say that again. I don't know anything about guitars, and I'm just starting out. Would you say that I should start out with an acoustic or an electric? I would say you should start off with an electric because the gauge of strings that you use, that's like the thickness and the tension on the strings, is a lot lighter on an electric. Right. So it's a lot easier to play than an acoustic guitar. I started on electric before I went to acoustic because you have to build up the calluses on your fingers. It's a lot easier to start on electric than it is on acoustic. I knew it was the other way around. And see, I was totally no. wrong. See, I was totally wrong. I told you I knew nothing. I knew nothing. Yeah, well, now, now you know. Now you know. Now, what if I wanted a guitar with bright pink and giant polka dots on it? Could I get that? Absolutely. Okay. That's on our website. You, you would pick the, the hot pink color that we have. And right. in the graphic section, you put polka dots all over it. And we would be happy to make it. In fact, those are the type of guitars that, you know, we actually really invite people to make and enjoy making because it's something that you can't find at Guitar Center that you won't see elsewhere. Yeah, because I want mine flaming. I want mine flaming. So okay. I'd appreciate that. Anything that you can dream up, we can make happen. I just wanted to say thanks for coming on the show. I'm talking with Dave Barry, co-founder of Monica Guitars, and they have some brilliantly bright and any type of color you can imagine guitars on their website. They have a Kickstarter going on right now. Go to their page, Monica Guitars. Check it out. And if you can't find it, go to DJGrandpa.com and maybe you'll see a picture of DJ Grandpa on there someday with a flaming pink guitar with polka dots and, you know, stuff like oh, that yeah. on there. So, you know, that would be cool. Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, what about that room song? Up next, another Kickstarter alum, Kari Tari. She is a Nordic Roots performance artist and spiritual leader from Minneapolis, Minnesota. She shares her Nordic ethnicity through live performances, workshops, and CDs. And she sings 
I wanted this interview to be like a celebration of your success on Kickstarter and I guess a celebration of what you're trying to teach and inspire young people with, you know, as far as tradition and roots. So welcome to the show, Kari. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. You're all about promoting culture and tradition. So could you tell me about that culture that you promote? Well, I grew up in... Minnesota, sort of the land of 10,000 lakes and 10,000 Scandinavians per block. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, I kind of was steeped in this sort of Nordic traditions. And then we have a lot of really strong influences that have continued from the Ojibwe culture that was here prior to the Scandinavians. And have a long tradition of cultural sharing and preservation of each other's root traditions. I listened to the music on your website, and it's very beautiful. Actually, to me, it feels as though it has an international flavor to me. It's almost kind of like one of those uh, international, the planet sleeps type of CDs where they have all this music from all sorts of different cultures, and it's just beautiful, and that's what your music reminds me of. Wow, thank you very much. The reason that that probably is, and the reason why all that music has a similar kind of compelling emotion to it, is that I think the further we dig down our own personal, individual family trees, the closer we actually come to being related to one another. A lot of the traditional music of Norway that I've been studying was based on nature tonal scales like a bone flute or a willow flute, listening to nature and listening to imitating the sounds of nature and creating music out of nature. So there's, there's that connection that we have. And then a lot of the rhythms are you know, sort of the in utero rhythms that every single human being hears as they're developing. So I think those are the real keys to the similarities. In your Facebook IM to me or inbox to me, uh-huh. you spoke about, you know, Northeastern Europe and the roots of Northeastern Europe. And you were trying to teach that, if I say this correctly, that white people have a great deal of culture to be respected and for them to learn. And it was all part of the process of being able to respect other people if they could respect their own culture. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's um, it's not North. I don't have North, Northeastern European. It's more mostly from Germany up. One of the things that I began to understand as I was working in my own cultural traditions were the different, you know, sort of intertribal relationships between, say, Norwegians and Swedes and Danes. Yes, there's still some. You know, some joking and some, they, they call it sort of f- fun ribbing that goes on. 
but it has its roots in a very, very deep hurt between these cultures. The Danes went into Norway and oppressed. After the Black Plague wiped out three quarters of Norway's population, it was pretty wide open to being taken over. So Norway calls that the 400-year night where the Danes came in and made it illegal for them to speak Norwegian and kind of repressing their culture and trying to form Norway to Danish culture. You know, and I think when we start to understand how historical traumas can damage a culture, even in our own, what would seem to be a perfectly healthy culture of Norwegian American Minnesotans, we can see where the dysfunctions rise up. We can't even really begin to think about helping any other culture or understanding any other culture until we go through our own piece and untangle all the roots that we have as European Americans. I didn't know that Minnesota was like a Norwegian stronghold, you know, didn't know that at all. Yes, there were 800,000 Norwegians that migrated here between 1960 and 1920. And then similar numbers of Swedes and Danes and a good healthy number of Finns and then equal numbers of Germans. So it's really, really Northern European here. I think part of the reason is that the climate here is so similar to what they left in their home countries. Mm -hmm. Nordic people really kind of count on a balance of extremes. We really can't tolerate a great deal of heat unless we've had a really good freeze, you know? So basically, you're educating me. You're giving me the cliff notes, basically, of that culture. I understand. Yeah. Let's get down the Kickstarter business, Mm. which is what this cast is about. (laughs) Yes. Tell me a little bit about the new album that you're working on right now. The Nicken, a lot of people, when they hear this music, it seems to dislodge some deep memory. That's how I felt when I first heard a lot of this music, especially the really ancient calling and, and that. You know, I have two sons that are teenagers, and... They're going to be negotiating their way in a world that is pretty confused, you know. And I really want to give them a sense of deep roots of who they are and where they come from so that when they meet people from other places and other cultures and other sort of upbringings, that they have a place to start. If you look for me, I will run. But if you play the willow flute... I am the bear, and I will come and listen. I appreciate your passion for history and the telling of the stories, and I'd like to thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's made me feel even more part of the community to talk with you, and I really appreciate that a lot. Rustle and a sudden spring, two white-tailed deer leaping, no longer waiting for an encore. All right, up next, Theron's Poetry Crib. Theron, what do you have for us this week? I'm going to do some live streaming for you today. Serious? 
for sure. You know I'm not ready for prime time. How are we going to go live? We just play it by ear. All right, go ahead. <laughs> All right. I don't kick the tires on any vehicles that bring me truth. I'm still hip-hop even if I never again grab the mic or step inside a recording booth. Wise enough to feast on crumbs and fragments, even after drinking from the hole. There is no lack in me. I have the universal backbone in me. Even my antagonist befriends me. My rhymes transcend me. Meta-motivated, elevated, fresh water flows through me. Never stagnated or separated, lies will never subdue me. School me. I am learning. A disciple of what is. Crack cold bliss. Know this wholeness, homies. Even death cannot hold me. Only shows what words don't know. Where the path inside my soul goes. Open me and God flows. Motivated and elevated. I see. I, I caught that. I caught that. <laughs> Meta motivated. Excellent, dude. If I were in hip hop right now and I was sitting in a studio and I was laying back in my chair, what would I say? I would say Primo. Sounds good to me. And that was Theron's poetry, Crib. He'll be back next time with totally original material. And I just want to say thank you, Theron. All right, then. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Theron's a writer, teacher, and poet. He's also DJG's Director of Marketing. That's it for this week's show. I'd like to thank all our incredible guests, and a special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams for producing the theme music to DJ Grandpa's Crip. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rupert.